Welcome. Well, this is uh, welcome to Clear Mountain's Wednesday evening live stream. Um, as is usual, uh, we well, as we sometimes have interviews, um, today we have a very special one, and we're being joined by Dr. Marjorie uh, Woolacott. Um, and uh, Doctor, we're so uh, honored that you joined us, and really happy to have this a conversation with you. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so for uh, a brief introduction, Marjorie Willicott, PhD, is an emer emeritus professor of human physiology at the University of Oregon and a member of the Institute of Neuroscience. She has served as the chair of the human physiology department and has taught courses on neuroscience, rehabilitation, complementary meditation, medicine and meditation. Willicott is the research director for the International Association of Near-Death Studies and president of the Academy of the, for the Advancement of Postmaterialist Sciences. She graduated Magam Cum Laude from University of Southern California, earning her PhD in neuroscience and holds an MA in Asian studies from the University of Oregon. Willicott has published over 200 scientific, scientific articles and eight books, including the award-winning Infinite Awareness in 2015 which explores the spiritual power of the mind. And just as a brief preview, uh, some papers that Dr. Willicott recently published or have, has published uh, include perceptual phenomena associated with spontaneous experiences of after-death communication, verified account of near-death experience in a physician who survived cardiac arrest, the Academy for the Advancement of Postmaterialist Sciences Integrating Consciousness into Mainstream Science, and the Mystical Experience and its Neural Correlates. So uh, we had to condense that CV down numerous times until we arrived at one paragraph, but we're just so delighted to have this conversation, uh, Dr. Wolicott, and thank you so much again. Thank you, thank I'm you. so happy to be here. So um, people can feel free to type questions into the chat and we'll uh, plan to get to those towards the end of, of the interview. Um, to begin with though, Dr. Wolicott, in the back of your book, Infinite Awareness, um, it reads, as a neuroscientist, Marjorie Woolicott had no doubts that the brain was a purely physical entity controlled by chemicals and electrical pulses. When she experimented with meditation for the first time, however, her entire world changed. So I was hoping you would be able to describe for us your journey from a dry materialist neuroscience to someone who takes, uh, not only takes near-death experiences uh, seriously, but actually is at the forefront of that realm of research. And can you describe for us that journey? I think it's one that many find themselves somewhere on. Absolutely. And first of all, I just want to say a little bit more about that background. You had mentioned that I had published like over 200 papers in neuroscience that were related to brain development, aging, neurologic disease. And I received grants from the National Institutes of Health for like 35 years from like 500,000 to a million dollars per grant. I wrote a textbook for clinicians on assessing and treating patients. This now in its sixth edition. And what that really says is most importantly, I was a scientific materialist when I started that research and through then the beginning of my career. And that meant that my scientific view really was that the material world is the sole basis of reality. 
And that means that our thoughts, our movements, our awareness, or our consciousness are all solely a product of the neurons in our brain. So there's that dry materialist that we were talking about. But then in 1976, I had an experience in meditation that opened up for me an awareness of a dimension of reality that I had never before experienced. What happened is I was invited by my sister to a meditation retreat that was being given by an Indian meditation master. And though I was skeptical, I was curious. And so I decided to attend. And the first morning of that retreat, it was announced that during the meditation session, the Swami was going to walk around the room and he was going to initiate every individual there. The initiation was described as a spiritual awakening and it was to happen through the Swami's touch. Now, obviously the scientist in me was quite skeptical. Since I was there, however, I decided to put my skepticism aside for the weekend. And besides, I was curious to see what might happen. When he reached me, what I felt was the Swami's thumb and fingers right between my eyes and on the bridge of my nose. And I wanna say that I was alert. I really um, felt my eyes were closed, but my senses were otherwise fully engaged. So I had a sense of utter certainty about what happened. And it seemed like what happened was that a tiny lightning bolt leapt from his fingers to a point between my eyes and down to the center of my chest. And I could feel the exact point where it stopped. And it was my heart and not the physical heart, but parallel to the physical heart. And it felt more like a heart than my physical heart had ever felt. And then that energy from my heart began radiating outward, filling my whole being and beyond. And it felt like pure love, pure golden nectar flowing through me. Interestingly, words came to mind and they had nothing to do with scientific analysis. They were, I'm home, I'm home. My heart is my home. Hmm. And I think what was most astonishing for me is what happened afterwards because without any effort on my part or willing it in any way, I woke up the next morning and shifted my habits 180 degrees. I began meditating that morning at 5 a.m. spontaneously, and I've been meditating ever since, day after day. And I did that knowing that just beneath that surface of my awareness simmered this quiet ecstasy. And I tapped it once in that meditation retreat, and I had a feeling that it was there waiting for me. So there was that shift in my worldview. And now the issue is I'm a university professor and I have a professional dilemma. Is my worldview what I would call Newtonian, scientifically based, um, or is it energy based? And I asked myself, what is consciousness? And is it tied to neural activity or could consciousness possibly exist without neurons? And I think my scientific studies and worldview had not really prepared me for those experiences. And I wanna say that now, even though I was meditating every morning in my early years as a meditator, I considered myself first and foremost a scientist. And that experience had planted like a new seed of understanding inside of me at some deep level, but I didn't know how to integrate it into my life. And I imagine some people listening might've found that too with some of their first experiences. And it seemed like almost an impossible chasm existed between my life as the neuroscientist and my life as the meditator. And I should mention that it drove my poor husband, Paul, crazy because he loves meditation and he loves complementary medicine, homeopathy and Reiki, other sorts of things. And so 
when we would be having dinner with my scientific colleagues, he would bring up one of those topics only to get a horrified look from me as I would try to help him change the topic to something that I felt was more credible so I wouldn't lose my credibility with my scientific friends. And so then after about 25 years of leading those two separate lives, I felt a bit schizophrenic. And it was a problem I then decided to resolve by beginning to do research in my laboratory on meditation and trying to study the fundamental nature of consciousness within the universe. Finally, it's like my heart was saying, please do something that's really of interest to me. And so I then began collecting students that wanted to do research on meditation, Tai Chi and things of that sort, energy medicine. And from then on, I began moving forward in that direction, as you say, of taking consciousness seriously in a certain sense. Wow. Dr. Willicott, this is fascinating. I'm curious about this bridge between the Newtonian physics, Newtonian understanding of the world and a more yeah, consciousness-based or um, specifically in, in my own meditation practice or when I'm teaching meditation, I'll, t I'll say, okay, now bring awareness down to the heart, similar to what you were saying. And some people can't do that. And they're saying it's, it's not possible. I mean, awareness is in the brain but I mean, for me, it's like, you know, I can feel, it's like I can feel from my hand or feel from the heart. So that's one question. And then just, I also have this feeling from a first person perspective that, you know, and nothing, I'm not claiming any kind of extra sensory abilities, but close my eyes and feel my body from the inside. It feels as if I can feel bigger than I am. It's like skin, just fate, my sense you know, skin just uh, phases out into this cloud. And I'm curious from just from a physiological standpoint, how does, how does a scientist explain these two phenomena? Um, it's an interesting question. And I want to just say anecdotally something about myself too, before that experience, I still remember that I should mention that as an undergraduate, I was a music major. And then I went on to neuroscience and graduate school. And I would go to the school of music and interact with my musician colleagues. And they seemed to know that the true center of their being was their heart, where I really thought it was obviously, as you say, up in my head. And I remember at one point I thought, well, if I do have some sort of a soul inside of me, it must basically be like it has like a, a stone um, like edge around it. So I can't really see into or see out of the heart. And then with that awakening, something happened that cracked that open. So now I could feel in that place that was like deep inside of me. And I mean, and literally, as you're probably talking about, when you ask people to go down to the heart, it's like this joy and this love begin to pour out of it when I allow myself just to relax and let my awareness sit there. And it's sort of, it's like, wow, that was always there. But for whatever the reasons, I needed to have a shift in my awareness to allow that to happen. So I, I have compassion for those people that are still up in their heads. And I think obviously as you're doing your training with practice, we begin to move our, our awareness down and then have that. Your other comment that you can actually be aware in any part of your body, and I'm exactly the same way. Now I realize that every single cell of our body has its own consciousness. And so it's not that it's only the brain that has consciousness, it's that our gut has consciousness, our 
skin has consciousness, our muscles do. And in fact, it's almost like we have this incredibly well orchestrated field of billions of cells in our body, all with their own individual consciousness, but letting go of their own um, way in a certain sense of acting to be part of this wonderful network that keeps the human body working really, really well. So I think that's the important thing that I remember now. Now, your next part of your question, though, is I think for me as a neuroscientist, the most interesting. And that is, so how is it that sometimes when you close your eyes, you can experience an awareness that goes well beyond the edge of your body? And here, I think I would give an example of something from neuroscience, which is that when we when we came into this earth realm and became embodied, we in effect take up on a body that has five senses to experience the outer world. And of course we know what those five senses are, but what they do is they channel the incoming information into these like, um, quiet, so individual um, small channels of what the total energetic spectrum is. And therefore, I'm only seeing a tiny bit of the light spectrum that is out there when my eyes are open. I'm only hearing a tiny bit of the vibrations coming into me through my ears, etc. And so it's like, no wonder that I think that I end at the edge of my body where my skin receptors tell me that's all they feel. And what seems to happen in meditation and in spontaneous awakenings, um, in many traditions, in near-death experiences, et cetera, is that our filters inside of our brain that are keeping our perception of the universe very, very confined so that we can function adequately in this world, the filters are suddenly like closed down to different extents and they can be closed down almost all the way, in which case you suddenly have an awareness without those filters on of awareness that is vast and you feel your interconnection with other people in the universe. Because um, in fact, one of those networks that we talk about a lot now in neuroscience is the default mode network, which is again, part of your brain that is basically there to actually give you a narrative about who you are and how you relate to the world, which is very important for functioning in society. But it also takes up most of our perceptual space, having us think about what do I need to do next? What's happening in my life? And so when that is turned way down in deep meditation and or off in near-death experiences, we then have this expanded awareness of what's really out there. And it's phenomenal, as you say. Dr. Willicott, uh, thank you for all that description. And it strikes me that the some of the most uh, clear examples of this, um, well, reality of a non-material um, part of experience or of, of what we uh, exist as is the near-death experience. And some other research, which I think you have been working with or around. So I wondered for um, people who are new to this realm or maybe skeptical, what um, is the research or examples um, of near-death experiences we have or of uh, examples that this isn't just a epiphenomena of the brain, um, that these things are real, um, you know, in terms of near-death experience or other research into psychic phenomena? Yes, I mean, first I want to say that I think at one point you had asked me, well, what are the common elements of near-death experiences that people have? And of course they have them around the world. And one thing that 
I just want to mention that these are relatively common elements that um, people have. Of course, the first is a whole experience of a change in their sense of time and space. In other words, they often go beyond time and beyond space. They may have precognitive experiences, for example. Um, they also have their thoughts speeding up. And they often have, as you probably heard, life reviews where they go through almost every moment of their life, almost like going through a deck of cards and see exactly how others were feeling their actions on the other person's personality, how it, it basically really helped the other person feel joy or it actually closed the other person down. Um, feelings, of course, of peace and of joy. They often see mystical light. Their senses tend to be more vivid than they are in regular reality. And also, of course, they begin to become aware of things elsewhere in the um, world. For example, if they're in a hospital, um, they're outside of their body watching the resuscitation. They may be able to have their awareness go down the hall and hear a conversation of their family and another doctor. So those things are very common. Um, they also tend to enter an unearthly realm. And very often there's a border at the edge of that realm and they're told at a certain point, you have to go back now. If you go any further, you won't be able to go back. And they're then told to go back. So that's a little bit of what goes on with them. And now you ask, well, what's the evidence for these things? What If I were a skeptical scientist, um, would I believe um, the evidence or not? So first of all, of course, the skeptical scientists say they're just hallucinations caused by an oxygen-starved brain, for example. But there have been many, many studies done now, and I'll just name a few, and I think you can go again to PubMed or onto the web and find these studies. The first one is by Dr. Pin van Lommel from the Netherlands, another by Dr. Bruce Grayson from the University of Virginia, also Dr. Sam Parnia. These are all MDs that have done very careful prospective studies. Um, he's from SUNY Buffalo. And so the first thing they do is they do this prospective study, which is the gold standard of clinical studies. And what they do here is that they bring in every patient with cardiac arrest that comes into that hospital network over a period of, for example, maybe one to three years. And of those that survive cardiac arrest, they then interview them and say, did anything unusual happen during your cardiac arrest? And then the people will tell them exactly what happened. And in this one study by Pin Van Lommel, they had 344 patients. These patients had a flat EEG, that is no brain activity, about 20 seconds after their cardiac arrest, everything goes flat. And 12% of those had a core near-death experience. And of those 12%, one quarter watched and verified events of that cardiac arrest where they had no brain activity. And I think the interesting thing that Pim Van Lommel then says at the end of this article that is written in the journal The Lancet, which is ranked number two of all the journals in medicine, he's talking to skeptics. So this is how he phrases it. He says, at the end of his peer-reviewed article, the thus far assumed but never proven concept that consciousness and memories are localized in the brain should be discussed. He says, how could a clear consciousness outside one's body be experienced at the moment that the brain no longer functions during a period of clinical death with flat EEG? And I want to let your um, viewers also know that a very interesting documentary has come out recently called Rethinking Death, Exploring What Happens When We Die. And a an woman MD, Dr. Lindsay Gurren, said this about near-death experiences. She said, in the brainstem, that brainstem is down here, there is a pathway that sends impulses up to the brain and it's consistently sending alertness messages 
when we're awake. It's the ascending reticular activating system. And you have to have that intact to be awake. And it is not active during an NDE. And in order to experience conscious awareness, you also need to activate a variety of higher level brain networks. But in heart, cardiac arrest, these are mainly offline. So she asks, how can people lay down memories when the memory networks are not working? So according to a materialist model, this couldn't happen. But memories of what happens during NDEs are clearer than ever. So I think that's one more challenge to any materialist theory of brain function about NDEs. Dr. Willicott, in one of your recent papers, you mentioned a particular case of Bettina Payton, right. uh, who had a, a near-death experience. Could you maybe relate some of her story? She was a physician and yeah. it might shed some light on things. Definitely. And I should mention that I interviewed her for my book. And just a brief background on that. We were both taking a meditation retreat, a six-day retreat together. And she was the person that was organizing all of the technical details. And I was going to be um, uh, leading the retreat. And as we were preparing for the retreat a few days ahead of time, I told her that I was writing my chapter on near-death experiences for the book, Infinite Awareness. And she said, oh, well, I had one of those. <laughs> and I think, you're a physician. Wow, that would be interesting to hear. So we agreed that we wouldn't talk about it till the retreat was over. And then afterwards, I interviewed her. So I'll just give you some of the details of the interview. So first of all, she was an avowed materialist when she had that near-death experience during the birth of her third child, which was by cesarean section. And she lost consciousness under anesthesia until, as she writes, she heard a voice. Her blood pressure is too low. And it was the anesthesiologist's alarmed voice that snapped her awake as if from a deep sleep. And the and anesthesiologist said, well, how's it going? And he was asking the surgeon how far along he was in the delivery because he exclaimed, her blood pressure is plummeting fast. At the same time, she said, my vision opened and I discovered that I could see into the room. She says, how amazing because my eyelids had been taped shut to protect the corneas. Yet by some other mechanism, she could see perfectly clearly. She said she saw several units of blood hanging from an IV pole directly overhead, and one was already being transfused. Then she heard a volley of strident beeps. It was the cardiac monitor indicating that her heart had stopped. And Peyton watched the anesthesiologist slam his fist into this large red button in the middle of the wall. And of course, in medical jargon, he was calling a code that was going to culminate in the arrival of the hospital resuscitation team. Now, there's more about that medical drama that was unfolding, but I want to look now at Peyton's own experience, her feeling that she was about to die. She says, I see in my inner vision a vast darkness expanding behind me in the backmost boundary of my mind. She says, my awareness reaches the edge of a precipice and I lean backwards, arching over this chasm of darkness below. Very naturally, she says, I let myself fall, gliding downward in a graceful backward arc into the unknown. She says, the blackness sparkled, it shimmered, and she said the scintillating light was intriguing, intensely beautiful, mesmerizing. And she sensed a pervasive presence in the light, an intelligence, this pulsating power. 
And she said all was perfect until her experience was interrupted by a statement which she said she perceived like quiet thunder with the message, you must live. And she says at that point, she felt herself funneling down through the darkness, her consciousness then opening up into the confines of that hospital operating room. And Peyton then observed the members of that code team burst through the swinging doors and see their colleague's lifeless body on the table. And she says, my attention was then drawn to a white haired gentleman in scrubs, a senior surgeon that entered the room. She said, slowly and deliberately, he wove a path through the crowded room coming to her right side. And without a word, that elderly surgeon reached deep into her blood-filled abdomen. He located her aorta, aorta and he wrapped his fingers around it. Clenching his fist, he then clamped the aorta shut. She said, shortly after that, one of the doctors leaned over and whispered into Peyton's ear that her baby had lived. She had a healthy doctor, daughter. Now, when Peyton later opened her eyes, she was in the critical care unit, lying in a bed encircled by her husband and this whole team of doctors and nurses. She still had a tube in her trachea, so she couldn't talk, but she put up her hand to keep anybody from speaking, and she motioned to be given something to write with. And before anybody spoke, she wrote on a napkin words to this effect. She said, I know I have a baby girl, I know my uterus is out because they had to do a hysterectomy, and I know my heart stopped. After her NDE, once Bettina Payton awoke, she was utterly convinced that consciousness is primary. And in her words, when I woke up in the intensive unit care unit, I had vivid recall of everything that had happened. And she said, my perception was, as it still is, that I am not this body, this individual and that consciousness is real, and it's the substratum of everything that exists. And I wanna say she went on to work in hospice care, and people said that when she walked into a hospice room, her lack of fear of death could be felt. That's an amazing transformation from a materialist atheist scientist all the way through somebody who is now caring for people in hospice and having people feel her energy of presence, knowing that death is not the end. Dr. Woolicott, this is so fun to hear and, and important, I feel, as well. And I'm curious about those who emerge from near-death experiences, NDEs. What, um, how often are they changed? I mean, are there abilities they come back with? or um, And what shifts in their life trajectory? I assume sometimes they're sent back for a reason. And um, a second part of that question would be, uh, what evidence is there that there is iterations of this, that rebirth is the actual overarching paradigm rather than a simple single incarnation, if there is any research into that? Yes, yes. So first of all, in fact, the transformations after NDEs are almost as interesting or more interesting than the NDE itself, because pretty much every single person that recognizes they had an NDE actually has a transformation in their life. And I should say that um, 
the examples um, are um, very much like um, Bettina Payton. I should mention what happened to her that I talk about in an article I wrote about um, her and in my book is that she wanted to get back to that experience she had. And so she began to search how she might do that. And she came up with meditation. Here we are uh, talking about meditation in this interview as a way that she could find her way back. And she then actually um, was able to um, go to a meditation retreat with an Indian master. And in the moment of this um, spiritual retreat, she had an exact duplicate of her original experience where she was once again in that scintillating um, light, feeling that incredible immensity of, of love and joy and um, energy all around her. And she felt she merged, in fact, with that meditation teacher into this like vast love of the consciousness of the universe. And when she came back to her regular awareness, she was had tears running down her cheeks. And she said, after that, her main aim in meditation shift, excuse me, in in her do doctor's career shifted from just wanting to do regular um, therapy to trying to help people at the end of life make that transition to the other side because she now knew that it wasn't the end and she wanted to help people in that way. So that's one part of it. Um, I should say that I'm in fact right now writing a paper with a man named Dr. Jeffrey Long, an MD who has collected over a thousand near-death experiences on his website, and he and I together are looking at the transformational effects of NDEs. And I think one of the big things is people become much more compassionate toward other people and want instead of collecting more material possessions, but to actually give to others in any way they can. They really see the interconnection they have with other people in the universe, with the planet, with everything around them. And so suddenly they shift from a me-centered focus that the default mode network in our brain makes um, us aware of most of the time to one of I am part of this vast loving um, creative consciousness that exists throughout the world and I want to help other people in any way I can. So that's like the main issue and um, you will see if you look up transformation in NDEs a number of papers and hopefully you'll see my own with Jeffrey Long soon. So that's one thing. And then you're now mentioning the thing, uh, two other things. One is, so how many um, actually are told they have to come back or do they have a decision? So the first of all, many, many people are simply told, like Bettina, it's time for you to go back. You can't go any further. And that's exactly what happens. They end up coming right back into their body. Others are actually given a choice. And um, there's a wonderful book by Jeffrey Kripal and Elizabeth Crone, um, who tell about together her near-death experience where she was on the other side with a wonderful guide who she felt was almost like her grandfather who had died long ago. And that guide told her that she did have a choice. And the guide let her see the future and said, if you go back, there's a little girl that's waiting to come to you. She's already picked you out as one of her parents and she will come to you in this lifetime. And also, if you don't go back, your husband will then need to raise your two children you already have on his own. And she at that point said, I am definitely coming back. I want to raise my two children and I want to know the little girl that's about to come to me. And of course, all that happened to her. So those are two different things that can happen on the other side. And now your final question was related to um, cases suggestive of reincarnation. And I have to say that I find that particular topic very, very interesting. And in my book, Infinite Awareness, I have a chapter on it. And I should say that two people at the University of Virginia 
um, in the uh, medical school have been doing research on this. The first was Ian Stevenson, who did um, research for probably about 30 years at least. And then when he passed away, before he passed away, he passed on the professorship to um, Jim Tucker, who is now doing this research. And they do very, very careful studies. So I just want to tell you a little bit about the care with which these cases suggestive of reincarnation are actually studied. So the first thing they do is they're always working with young children that are two to three years of age. So these are the ones that come and say to their parents, you're not my parents. I was born in a different um, city um, in my um, last life and I don't know how I got here with you. And so they then, once the child starts saying these things, they take very careful recordings, they do interviews just like they use um, in the legal system in terms of their interviews. They also include autopsy reports of the person the child says they previously were, birth records, they look at newspaper reports, and they carefully search for the previous family. And if they find them, they then interview the family that the child says they really belong to, and then they also interview the current family. And so they have amazing, amazing documentation of like 2,500 or more cases of near-death experiences all over the world. I think from every continent, of course, except Antarctica. So I say that that is the way that it's being done. And I wanna say something that the American Medical Association said about um, Ian Stevenson's study when he, they wrote a review of one of Stevenson's books. They said, in regard to reincarnation, he has painstakingly and unemotionally collected a detailed series of cases in which the evidence is difficult to explain on any other grounds. And I highly recommend one case, which is that of James Leininger that Jim Tucker has talked about that many of you may know about. It's a fascinating case. Uh, Dr. Willicott, thank you so much. Yet his Ian Stevenson's 20 Cases Suggestive of Reincarnation is a book you'll find in many monasteries. My father is a psychiatrist who studied at, did his residency at University of Virginia in the late 70s and met Dr. Uh, Dr. Stevenson and said, yeah, he seems like a nice guy. doesn't seem insane. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll be interviewing him next week. Um, but <laughs> another, an adjacent topic is after death communication. Um, so you've written, written a paper on that recently. And could you say more about that? Um, yeah, what is, what is after-death communication and um, what leads, what could lead one to think that it's not just hallucination? Right. So first of all, that's something that's been studied carefully in scientific um, communities since probably the mid-1800s. And um, a number of people that um, we consider like um, the um, beginning um, professors studying psychology are basically um, ones that were doing that research back in like 1860 and 1870. And I talk about that in the paper. But then what happened is, is that we moved into a more materialist perspective in medicine. Um, what happened is that doctors were basically saying um, after-death communication is not real. And if you have, for example, your mother or your father or your um, sister come back to you and sort of talk to you in what appears to be a real communication from the other side, it's just your grief that's causing it. It's a hallucination. It's not real. And they tried to get people to get over their quote-unquote grief and those experiences of communication so they could move on in their life. And now more recently in the last 30 years probably, people are saying, wait a minute, that is not just some hallucination caused by grief, those are real communications. And so they began to very carefully study them. So in this particular study that I did with Chris Froh, Evelyn Elsesser and others in England and Switzerland, they actually created a questionnaire 
of a number of questions and asked people who had had what they thought was a near death, excuse me, a, an after death communication to write down the particular experience and then to describe all the details of it. And I think one of the interesting details for me as a neuroscientist interested in the five senses and how we perceive things is that people communicated from the other side through all of the five senses, through, for example, vision, they came visually in front of the person. They came through um, aromas, like the coffee that the father used to always drink in the morning. They came through touch, they would actually touch them and they would feel their skin. Um, through um, the taste of things that the person often loves, like a, a brioche or something like that. And the other thing that happened that was the most important for me is that the person from the other side often gave information that no one on this side knew to help them find lost objects. And I'll give you one example from that paper. One particular um, person basically um, was actually had, had the after-death communication from um, a person who had died. It was the father of a, of a woman. And the person on the other side said, I can't get through to my family, but would you tell them the, where the key is. And they thought, oh, the key, that must be something about, you know, the key is love or something. But no, no, they said, he said, the key to the locked gun cabinet is in this particular um, drawer here. And when the person told him, uh, told the family this, the mother laughed because she said, since her husband died, she had been wanting to get rid of this locked gun cabinet that he had with the guns in it, and she didn't know where the key was. And so he literally came from the other side, told a friend to tell the family, and that's how they found out about it. And I think there are many, many cases of those things where there's no way that people could have known it except for the information that came from that being from the other side. So I find these are fascinating, fascinating cases. Thank you, doctor. And we wanted to take some of the audience questions and just to group um, some together, uh, the more skeptical ones that might you could sort of address in, in one group, um, perhaps. Uh, one question is, I believe, uh, is it possible to maintain awareness when the default mode network is, I think that's a typo, I think inactive is what it's supposed to say. Um, another is, uh, could, the an EEG be measuring the wrong thing, and how could we measure consciousness, or do we even need to? So it's a lot of a lot of questions, but it feels like it's circling around uh, something similar. And the third, do you think the events of people's NDEs could be biased by their expectation or exposure to what an NDE is in the media? So whichever one of those you feel like speaking to, Doctor. Well, I mean, first I think I'll, I'll take. Um, the one saying, well, with the default mode network turned off, could there be consciousness? Well, in fact, I mean, with an NDE, they know that the default mode network is turned off. Um, in fact, just a reminder that the EEG is measuring all of your cortical activity. So if there were anything left in your brainstem, for example, um, the default mode network is, is up in the cortex. So the cortex is turned off, the default mode network is turned off. So yes, you can be conscious. Um, and I, I also should mention that, by the way, people are learning now that people in a coma are also conscious and they come out of the coma and they tell the people around them everything that was going on during their coma. So once again, I think that's evidence. Now, I think, um, now remind me about some of the other questions. Um, Sorry, there was but, a lot. Um, how about, uh, let me see, we had, could an EEG be measuring the wrong thing, but I think you already- I just, Yeah, so it's, it's measuring the right thing, yeah. Okay, and uh, is it possible to maintain, 
maintain awareness when the default mode network is inactive. We already spoke to that. Mm-hmm. And the final um, is, is uh, do you think the events that people report from NDEs could be biased by their expectations or exposures? Yeah, and that's a very good question. And here is where we bring in children. So children have near-death experiences just like adults do. And children that are like two or three years of age have near-death experiences where they say exactly the same things as an adult. It's a little bit like the reincarnation um, studies where they're looking at cases suggestive of reincarnation in a two-year-old. And again, like that James Leiniger case, the child is naming the person that he was in the previous life, and that's is investigated and found to be accurate. It's the same way with the NDEs that the children have the same sorts of experiences that um, Bettina Payton did, but from a child perspective. And in fact, they have children that draw themselves from above their bed in the hospital room to show what they saw. So it's hard to believe that it's expectations in that case. And I should say, I mean, Bettina Payton was an avowed atheist. She did not believe in near-death experiences. And so there, she was shocked to find out that she had been wrong. Ajahn? Ajahn, I think you're muted. Okay. So the next question is, uh, how can dimensions and near-death inform or open my deep meditation? So this is an interesting question. So you have people like, I mean, as far as I know, Dr. Ian Stevenson didn't, you know, become a monk or like leave and join an ashram or something, you know, just continued his research. So some people can come across this research and maybe it doesn't. I mean, I don't know enough about his biography, but you know, does how can one intentionally stimulate um, the uh, life-changing aspects that this kind of research um, could could stimulate? Do you have any thoughts about that? Well, I think that when you look. Well, maybe I'll just mention that I wrote another book that addresses this question called Spiritual Awakenings, Scientists and Academics Describe Their Experiences. And it's simply an edited book of essays of scientists and academics about their spiritual awakenings. And one portion of them are people that had near-death experiences. And so those are not that different from deep meditative awakenings or um, others, for example, there were some from like taking neuromodulatory drugs like psilocybin or things like that. And so I think the key issue is that each one of these awakenings, whether it's near death through meditation, um, spontaneous awakenings as well, have very similar characteristics. And one of those includes the ability to actually have precognition and to have a sense of telepathy where you know what other people are thinking, um, including people that are near you or around the world. And often these abilities are not even wanted by the meditator or the person that had the near-death experience, but somehow their whole being is transformed so that it's like they have an ability unconsciously to communicate with others around them in the world and also communicate like into what we maybe I should call it beyond the time space continuum and find out what things are going on at distances they shouldn't know about and in times they shouldn't know about. So I think to me, all we're saying is that in meditation, which is what we're talking about here, one can also develop those skills. And of course, um, you and I were talking earlier um, before we got on 
live about um, fire casino retreats and how many people in fire casino retreats that I have now begun to interview have had experiences of those sorts when they're doing very prolonged meditations for long hours of the day. I think you begin to quiet all those aspects of the brain down and your filters then are reduced enough that you can begin to have this more expansive awareness. Dr. Yuva managed to answer our questions so a rapid fire array and just impressive. So uh, we're really appreciative. And um, we're, uh, I'll be posting a Zoom link in a few minutes and um, people are welcome to jump onto that Zoom if they want, um, but we will uh, just make sure to, or if it's all right, keep this interview going for just a, a tad longer, um, as long as you're willing to speak sure. with us, doctor. Um, another question that came up, Maybe a big question, but what might your personal beliefs be of the implication of certain people being urged to return and others not being granted that choice, assumably? That's interesting. And, you know, and I wonder about that issue of not being granted or not. I don't know, because obviously we, we hear about the ones that say, I'm going to return. I want to tell you about one other interesting story, and that is um, by a man, um, I think his name is... Um, Ted Owens, I'm not sure about that, but I think his last name is Owen. He um, wrote a book about his near-death experience where he was driving a car with his family in it, his wife and his two sons, two sons in the back seat, and he went asleep to sleep at the wheel, and then the car turned over when it finally ended up stopping, and he realized there was no noise in the car except for one son who was crying, and that's because his wife and the other son were dead. He then had a near-death experience where he and his wife were both now outside of the car and talking to each other. And she said, you have to go back. I'm going to go on. That's fine. I meant to go on, but you have to go back because you have a son to take care of. And that woman then appeared to the doctors in the hospital after this man was taken to the hospital. And they also saw her. She was like watching over her husband as they were taking care of him in this very wonderful, sweet way. But I mean, making it very clear that she was supposed to go on and he was supposed to stay back. And he said that was obviously very hard for him, especially to feel like he had been responsible for the death of his other son. But the, he later found a year later in an after-death communication, he saw his son and his wife from the other side coming to him, which also made him comfortable to know that everything is the way it should have been. Thank you. Dr. Willicott. Um, I think Ajahnisabel might go over to uh, Zoom right now, um, but if you're willing to stay on for just a, a few more questions, um, sure. that would be wonderful. I, I, will, I will duck out, but doctor, just so appreciative of your research, of your courage for kind of wading into this realm. I know you did risk uh, something by doing so, and it's so refreshing. I mean, Rebirth gets put aside often in Buddhist circles, but um, you know, in in modern Buddhist circles. But I do think it's significant, and just your bright demeanor as well is such a gift. So we're so grateful for you joining, and thank you. Thank yeah. you. It's been wonderful talking to you. All right, I'll leave you to it, and uh, people are welcome to join on Zoom uh, if they would like. But I encourage people to stay on here. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So I mean, just on that note, um, I remember having a one of my monk brothers saying that, you know, if 
this this area of near death uh, research, uh, near death studies research, um, you know, it would just if more money could be channeled into it, uh, it could just have such a profound effect on society. I mean, if more cases suggestive of reincarnation or more cases suggesting just that when the lights go off on the machine, the EKG or whatever, that, um, you know, that's not the end that, you know, if more evidence piles up on that, then that would really change people's yeah, whole moral, moral system. So. Well, can I just add to that too? Because one of the research projects that I'm doing right now is on terminal lucidity. And again, just a reminder to people that is when a person has dementia or Alzheimer's or is in a coma um, and they're in the last stages of their life, their brain in many cases is completely um, gone quote unquote, um, in the last minutes to hours of their life, they come back to their family in total lucidity and they say goodbye to everyone and then they die. And we're just doing a study right now on terminal lucidity in children. And these are like three, um, four-year-old children that have some sort of a neurodegenerative disease or immune disease. And the same thing happens, they're in a coma. And then when finally the parents decide no more life-saving, like emergency support, they're now with the parents quietly. They come out of their coma. They say goodbye to them. They have this wonderful time uh, talking to them. And often they say, you know, so-and-so is going to be with me on the other side. And they will like see, you know, an aunt or a grandparent or something like that and say, they'll take care of me. Don't worry. So I see those and I think there's that example that we clearly are more than our bodies. Mm -hmm. And if we can just help people understand that, um, I think it would change end of life healthcare considerably so that we could improve the way we give hospice care to allow families and, and the dying person to be together and allow them to have these experiences of transition that are so important and would probably change the life of their family members as well as they saw the person moving now very peacefully toward death as they understand that it's not the end. They're just moving, they're transitioning to another experience. Well, well, just on that note, I'm curious if you have any either anecdotal evidence or um, if, you've, if there have been any studies or uh, reports about just what factors influence the actual experience of a near-death near experience. So, I mean, if someone is surrounded by loved ones, is their near-death experience different from someone is, if someone is surrounded by you know, people who just know loved ones around, or if loved ones are crying and, you know, kind of, you know, holding on so tightly. Is there any um, reports about the difference of, of those yeah. effects? Well, in fact, I mean, here's the interesting thing. With many of the cases of terminal lucidity, when the parents are doing everything they can to keep that child alive, the child just sits there in a coma and will not die because the parents are like holding on so tightly. And when the parents finally say to them, in this one case with one child in a coma, okay, it's okay with us if you want to leave now. That's when the child woke up, said goodbye, and then died a few hours later. But it's like, I, we don't realize that, as you say, our, our tears, our grief in the presence of that person and our holding on so tightly can keep them from having that beautiful terminal episode and being able to say goodbye to us in a beautiful way. I mean, what a lesson for us. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, maybe just two more questions from people uh, watching. So this question is that most near-death experience stories I've heard seem to be in a healthcare setting. Is there, uh, do they happen much in other settings? And then there's also a question, um, not 
so related, but is there any evidence to suggest that animals can have near-death experiences? Beautiful question. So, so first of all, they happen in all settings. And um, I think that um, if you read um, some of the articles on NDEs, you'll be amazed to see that. And I mean, for example, very often a person has um, cardiac arrest at their house because they've had a heart attack. And they have the near-death experience where they leave their body right then. And sometimes their um, awareness follows the ambulance to the hospital, but it happens in many, many different ways. Also, um, people that, for example, have had a terrible fall during um, a climbing incident or something like that will have near-death experiences. So yes, they happen in every way. And then the second one related to animals I love because um, there was just a paper published recently that I know people can find on um, end-of-life experiences in animals, including terminal lucidity and things of, of near-death sorts of experiences in animals. And there are wonderful stories where, again, um, Rupert Sheldrake is the person that did this research along with Michael Nam and published that paper. And they show that people who are aware of their animals um, have seen those things. I'll just give one, one example of terminal lucidity in a dog. So um, according to Rupert Sheldrake, there was a family that had a dog who was getting older. He was you know, ready to die and he had a bed in the kitchen. And he had been lying in the bed without moving for a long time, like barely, you know, even opening his eyes, anything at all. And all of a sudden, one night at dinner, he gets out of bed, he goes around the table and he shakes hands with every one of the family members there. He goes back to his bed and he dies. Wow. So, wow. I mean... I mean, these are our animals. I mean, I guess what it reminds me about is that a materialist would call an animal this a robotic, you know, being without any real, like, like true spirit. But of course, we all know that animals are just like human beings, and they have very, very similar experiences. And and, and they want to say goodbye to us. They mm. really love us, and so they do in any way they can. And that was one perfect example. And there are many of those stories in this article that was again by Rupert Sheldrake. I can certainly email that. Um, article um, to you and you could send it out to people that want to see it. That would be fascinating. Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Willicott. Um, and maybe this can be our last question. Don't want to keep you so late on, on Valentine's Day, but um, <laughs> would you mind giving an overview of what we don't know, but which research is close or working on uh, figuring out and which we might be able and close to be figuring out? So. Oh, yeah. I mean, to me, the biggest question really is, and this is coming from the neuroscientist who's also a meditator, how does our brain and our higher, more expanded consciousness actually relate? Like we talk about, um, people call it the transmission or the transceiver hypothesis that somehow the brain is receiving and transmitting information, but we right now have no idea how that really goes on. And the fact that when the brain then goes into um, an EEG arrest, no brain activity, how consciousness then is able to continue on um, being aware and also function um, as if it had five senses, but now they are in 360 degrees around. It's like, what on earth shifts between the five senses and only immediate surroundings to a an awareness and an ability to move through rooms, through walls, um, to find things in the future. It's like literally something's expanded beyond the incredibly tight boundaries of our mind-body complex that is embodied. We have no idea how that, um, I would say, how, how that interface actually works between the two. And is that the hard problem of well, I mean, I'd say that that's one of the portions of the hard problem, that when we talk about the hard problem of consciousness is, is how does the brain 
create consciousness. And of course, the point is that people say, look, because the hard problem will never be solved because the brain doesn't create consciousness. Consciousness created the brain and the body and the mind complex. And they're both working then in an interactive way um, as um, the body then needs to be able to do things in this three-dimensional reality. Well, Dr. Willicott, thank you so much for coming on and uh, talking with us monks. It's been such a pleasure and we would love to meet you in Seattle if you ever come that way and yeah, maybe have another interview at some point. But um, yeah, if people are curious to learn more or um, if they'd like to help support your work in any way, what, how can people uh, find out more? Well, certainly they can go to my website, marjoriebullockot.com. So that's um, clear. And again, I highly recommend that book, Infinite Awareness. And then the one about all the scientists and academics I love because we think of these as being materialists. So this is spiritual awakening, scientists and academics describe their experiences and they're wonderful, like four page essays. And um, I would say also, um, feel free to email me. I am happy to respond to emails. And if people have questions about studies or want to know how they could do research, I'm happy to chat. So that would be fine too. Dr. Willicott, thank you so much. Um, thank you. I'll be going over to Zoom now, but um, yeah, I wish you, hope you have a great night. And um, yeah, see people over on Zoom. And Ajahn Nispo is still on three-month three month retreat, but still going alms round every day and uh, still going into St. Mark's on Saturday so people can join him there. So have a great day, a great evening, Marjorie. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.